Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, hello, and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm co-producer Leo Garcia, joined via Zoom by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. Today, we're going to be talking about a bunch of stuff, but really, we've been in isolation for a year, guys. <laughs> How are you guys uh, feeling? Uh, who can tell? Who can describe the feelings we feel right now? Not I. This is a millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. Skipping ahead to the clicker, our recap of the biggest news items from this past week. Guys, last Friday was the finale of WandaVision. I stayed up till midnight. Ben, what ungodly hour did you wake up at to uh, write the review? Uh, 4.30. 4.30 in the morning. Uh, I just wanted to get here. I just wanted to get your guys' quick hit thoughts on the finale, uh, you know, what it did successfully, what you think it was lacking. Libby, do you think it crossed the threshold of not just being, in, in your in your words, fluffer for the MCU? You know, I felt, I, I, it took me a really long time to figure out how I felt about that WandaVision finale. It left me simultaneously more excited for Doctor Strange, but also less excited for Falcon and Winter Soldier. It was much more low-key than I was expecting, which was nice because there was a part of me that really thought that they were going to leave it on this major cliffhanger and then just kind of leave it out there lingering for over a year until we get the film. And while the next series would pick up a little bit, it obviously wouldn't be as directly um, correlational as WandaVision was. And and that was a that was a huge source of dread for me. I did not want this to just be a hype thing. I think it did do a lot towards deepening both Wanda and Vision as Vision as characters within that universe. I don't know if it was necessary. <laughs> like I liked it. I enjoyed what it was doing. I had a good time while I was watching it. I still am not entirely sure if it was great. It had great moments. It did some things really well. It's definitely among the most fun I've had watching TV in 2021, but it's very difficult for me to synthesize all of those things into one coherent, singular thought about WandaVision. Ben, do you have any better insight? Uh, no. <laughs> after, after spending last week writing approximately 5,000 to 6,000 words about WandaVision, um, I think... Uh, in my defense, same. <laughs> right. No, of course. And I think that's kind of the thing. It's very hard to distill an opinion of that show into something as simple as what you might expect from other limited series. Like typically a limited series is something that you can have a, a pretty strong, firm opinion about because it's a complete story. Uh, and WandaVision both functions as a limited series and that it tells a very specific story within Wanda's life, but it also relies heavily on the surrounding atmospherics and events and um, kind of personal attachment that you may or may not have to the characters going in. Um, not to mention there's just so many quibbles as we've already gone over uh, about the construction of the show um, 
and how effective that is. Uh, but in terms of, of the finale, my main impression was that it did what it had to do pretty well. Uh, the, the, the way it wraps up Wanda and Vision's arcs uh, is was somewhat inevitable and pretty satisfying. Uh, the action scenes terrible i mean let's not let's not mince words there i still i am amazed just amazed at how often people think that cgi magic shows are effective in any way whatsoever i I like that there's a a kind of balance between the magic show that was in episode two i believe Uh, like the actual magic show that they put on as a sitcom and it was funny and endearing and then like actual magic is being wielded at the end of actual magic in quotes it's being wielded at the end so i guess if you want to make that argument sure but you still have to come up with a more visually compelling way to do it but no like the emotional beats worked very well um save for and this i won't get into because it's spoiler territory and too complicated really uh save for wanda's penance or larger takeaway from what she'd done uh not not in her relationships but in her connection to westview uh that that doesn't work at all that's a serious problem (laughs) that's something where you're like oh uh, hmm, I don't know if I can get on board with this human being anymore, but sure, let's let's continue forward. Um, that's going to linger for a while, and I'm sure that the MCU will address it in one way or another uh, after gauging everyone's appropriately mixed reactions. So, uh, so yeah, it's over. I'm very glad that it's over because it was a huge stress on my life, uh, but I'm also very glad to have experienced it with the both of you primarily because... Uh, otherwise, it may have broken. And I am steadfast in my belief that it was the greatest show of all time. <laughs> you nailed it. A good you show it or won. great show? Yeah. From 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 the jump, ask the question. Nailed it. I think I do think that Libby. Something you said that is uh, that that interested me was like the series wasn't necessary. And I think like I think from the jump, I said it always felt like it was ancillary material. If you want, if you want just this core story, just watch the MCU movies. And then, if you want to do all the reading, you can you can watch WandaVision. And I have a feeling a lot of the shows are going to be that, only because of the amount of time it would take someone to sort of take all of it in all the time. I have a I have a question. I'm sorry. Couldn't you say the same thing about at least a no, third I, of the movies? I I, I, don't, I don't disagree. I think I think oh. that I think that, but I do think more recently it's become less like that. I think now now the movies are starting to tie, especially as uh, what I think is going to be some of the fun of this next phase is characters from their own movies coming together, which were always sort of the, the more fun aspects of a lot of comic book stories, like team-ups. So, so when you get a movie where like, hey, it's Captain America and Black Widow on the road. It's Thor and uh, Hulk on another planet. Like these are like that's sort of the core of like yeah, I know you hate it that that was the core of like what what makes a lot of fun comic book stories like hey let's put these two people together and see what happens it's kind of how you build sitcoms You're like let's put these two characters together in a, in a plot in a B plot that don't have anything else to do they wouldn't normally be in, in in a situation with each other it's all of that and I think that's a really good point um, yeah the the early phases of Marvel were definitely about you know putting out all of these outliers. And I say that as someone who, you know, watched, recently watched Iron Man 1, Iron Man 2, and then found this huge relief for the first time, sitting down and starting Thor, watching the first five minutes, and there are no Iron Mans, and there are no <laughs> Iron Man villains. 
uh, dressed in Iron Man costumes. And Kenneth Branagh's direction is just such a stark, uh, a, no pun intended, a, a stark <laughs> difference from John Favreau's direction. And it, it feels new and exciting and different. And I think that was the, the joy of when they were really building that out. It was like, oh, let's go to a completely different universe. Now this is this is going to be different storytelling. And I, I do appreciate um, these little pit stops to pick up all of those characters that, that didn't get their own standalone feature films. Um, I am frustrated that one of the people getting a movie is someone who's dead. Um, and we still haven't gotten that fucking movie. Um, and of course it's, 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 it's a woman. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an imperfect, it's an imperfect system. Um, but yeah, I, I think it is, I, I think you're exactly right. And I think that is a better way to view these Marvel TV shows than yes, as a fluffer, which was more a direct commentary on how, uh, Kevin Feige seem to be describing the shows and 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 it, this is a more generous um it's it's the extra reading you're right it's the it's the um appendix um you, you can see you will of the marvel you can, universe you can easily see a universe where we don't have wandavision and there's just a 10 minute or 15 minute prologue to dr strange and the multiverse of madness which showcases wanda becoming the scarlet witch you could also see whatever movie has a subsequent vision in it where there is a prologue to be like, here's how this thing happened. And that's like, and like whether or not it's the same mechanics or not, like they're very easy retro fixes that wouldn't require WandaVision as the show to exist. And this is the difference between two hour Marvel movies when this, when, when the franchise begins and, you know, three hour, three and a half hour Marvel movies uh, by the end of phase four. So in, in some cases, like if it is going to make the movies better, maybe that's okay. If that's going to allow me, shut up, Ben. That's, there's a reason you haven't been allowed to talk in like 10 minutes. Um, if that's going to make the movies better, so be it. If that's going to make um, more opportunities to diversify the stories that Marvel is telling, so be it. Yeah, it's, it's Marvel's world. We're all just living in it, whether we want it to, or whether we want to or not in a way Marvel is to the world. I mean, I, I imagine that living in this world is very Westviewian for Ben. Um, he doesn't have a choice. He is trapped here. He's not allowed his own thoughts and feelings about it because he will get screamed down. And uh, yeah, it's just a miserable, horrible existence. And, and we're so glad to inflict that upon you, Ben. Speaking of WandaVision, the DGA and PGAs had their nominations announced yesterday for television. Uh, and WandaVision earned a nom for directing in limited series or TV movie. Uh, is this the first step in a long road for WandaVision uh, Emmy's hopes? Maybe, Leo. Uh, it's complicated. It's always complicated when we're talking about the Winter TV Awards as compared to the Emmys. Uh, I'm not going to go into all of that, but it's specifically weird this year because some of the guilds have decided to ascribe to the Oscars eligibility window. Um, for those of you who don't know, the because of the pandemic, the Oscars extended their eligibility window to through the end of February. Um, some guilds have adhered to that. So while some guilds extended through the 28th, 
other guilds kept their television eligibility through the end of December. So for those guilds, WandaVision was not, or for, the, for those groups, because it, it, it is like the PGA and then the Golden Globes, I believe, WandaVision wasn't eligible. It, 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 it debuted in January. For the others, it was really getting into the heart of the, of the season. So the fact that it was able to crack the DGA, I think is significant. It is a weakened year. I mean, last year, if you look at the DGA nominations, it was Succession and I think three Game of Thrones. It was very uh, stiff batch of contenders. So I, I think it's, it's significant that it got in there. It tells me that people within the industry are watching, they are responding. And I mean, if you look at it last year, the competition in, in dramatic directing was so stiff that, you know, industry favorite, The Mandalorian didn't get in. This year it has, uh, along with WandaVision. It, it's, it's, it's a sign that this Marvel series is on their radar, that it won't necessarily have to fight for legitimacy as much as we kind of expected Mandalorian to. At the risk of going too big a tangent, it must be infuriating if you're like Apple TV Plus. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. There's just Disney. Disney is does not care about awards. And like the Mandalorian is is nominated for best drama. Disney's just employing the same strategy that they always have in that like they don't they know that the awards need them more than they need awards. So they're just going to keep making the shit that everybody loves. And especially in TV, let them come crawling up to him and be like, please let us be part of your wonderful glory and uh, have some of your viewers for our telecasts and events. So can we call it now? Can we call it now? The Emmys, best drama series, Mandalorian season two, not for win, but for nomination and best limited series, WandaVision nominations. I refuse to call that now. Mandalorian will get nominated for Best Drama Series. I can't say that about WandaVision because Limited limited Series feels like even more of a nightmare than it has been in recent years. Um, We have a full lineup right now, and not necessarily, not all of them are necessarily good, but we have a full lineup right now, and there are still a few huge contenders yet to drop um, that we've seen hide nor hair of. So we don't really know if they're going to live up to our perceptions or not. I mean, it, and and that's the thing. That's the thing about Disney is is they are such a high profile. They don't have to give out screeners. Uh, they don't have to provide access. Like we're going to write about them no matter what. We're going to write about Marvel. We're going to write about Star Wars. Like they don't have to come and curry favor with us. Apple TV Plus is in a in a. <laughs> And, and, and believe me, it, it pains me to say this because this is one of the largest corporations on earth. Apple TV Plus is actually at a stark disadvantage because they don't have the back catalog. And also they're just not putting out that much new content every year. So they have to really push for the things that they have. The good news for them is that Ted Lasso continues to thrive. It did very well at the Critics' Choice Awards. It won three, including um, the first major notice for Hannah Waddingham. Um, in supporting actress for comedy. Jason Sudeikis won again, the series won. Right now, I think you have to say that Ted Lasso is heading into the Emmys as the comedy favorite. will definitely get nominated. I wish I kept it in the podcast, but when we were first talking about Ted Lasso, in the wake of Schitt's Creek, I remember going, Ted Lasso will win all the comedy awards. You nailed it. You nailed it. (laughs) You're you're our you're our special little rube guy. Um, <laughs> our special little guy. 
Uh, Question for Rootman: um, Do you, do you do you think Apple really needs a library anymore? Like, do you think that that's a disadvantage now that they have Ted Lasso season one, and every person who's thinking about, well, I can cancel Apple TV Plus, also has to think, can I go a month without watching Ted Lasso? I'm thinking about revisiting myself, so maybe maybe that's all you need. <laughs> I think they just need that. Just, just watch Ted Lasso Ted once a month. <laughs> It's also worth mentioning that Ted did very well at uh, PGA and specifically at DGA. PGA got its nomination and DGA, it managed two nominations uh, Zach Braff. for Episodic, including <laughs> Zach Braff. So thanks for that, Bill Lawrence, as always. <laughs> Speaking of continued success in the march towards the Emmys. Congratulations to The Crown for doing just as well as everyone expected them to do. Um, They did not show up in the DJ nominees because no UK shows do. As far as eligibility goes, we saw the same thing with Fleabag. We saw the same thing with uh, I May Destroy You. So if you're wondering about that, that's what's happening there. They did manage a PGA award, however, and they won, I think, four a lot of Critics' Choice Awards, including Josh O'Connor keeps winning. So I guess start readying yourself for that. Uh, he was good this year, definitely buoyed by the by Emma Corrin and the Diana stuff. At this point, I, I think we need to we need to at least 50 percent just ready ourselves for the fact that the Crown is going to win drama series. It is their best season in some time it's never won drama series at the emmys it has always been edged out by either game of thrones or something more of the moment like handmaid's tale uh for its first season and then succession last year which was as we remember the only good show on television remember perhaps an even uh more important netflix has never won a series emmy so they are long overdue to win best comedy, drama, or limited series. Yes. Oh, that's right. I always forget that. It, that's such a weird stat. Like, it's, it makes no sense whatsoever. It could come um, down to the order in which uh, the awards are announced. If Ted Lasso is going to win comedy and they announce it before Best Drama, then Apple TV Plus could win a series award to become... Let's see, it'd be, I think it'd be everybody. It'd be Hulu had won one, Amazon mm-hmm. had won one, mm-hmm. Apple TV Plus. Who are we missing here? I mean, HBO Max would, I guess, lose, but this is their Disney, first year. Disney, baby. So like, yeah, <laughs> Disney, yeah. Oh, man, Crown versus Mandalorian. Let's do it. it. It was nominated for six awards, Libby, and it won, but a lot of those were in dual Right, categories. it won four of six, yeah. but yeah. Uh, the only category the max w- it could have won was four, I believe. The max it could have won was five. Tobias uh, Menzies did not win in supporting yeah. actor. Michael that's K. Williams right. won for Lovecraft Country. Right. That's Hard the, to argue against Michael K. Williams. Only That's the only category in which it was nominated that did not win. So it essentially nearly swept its, its awards. Luckily for the crown, I will say... Royal family drama continues to abound. <laughs> At an all-time high. I mean, yeah. you could not have asked for uh, more of a pre-awards boost than... Fast promotion yeah, potential. So, so on Sunday, uh, Oprah sat down for uh, an, a two-hour uh, interview with uh, Meghan Markle and, and Prince Harry. Uh, it was watched by 17.1 million people, which is... <laughs> Three times the amount of people that watched the Golden Globes. <laughs> Nearly three times. And for and for more, 
on this, I think we have to go to our crown correspondent for yet another edition of Corgi Corner. This week on Corgi Corner, we are not talking about the crown, even though the crown is obviously going to sweep the Emmys after its great showing during the winter TV awards. What we're going to talk about this week on Corgi Corner is how the corgis are probably the only creatures in Buckingham Palace who don't hate Prince Harry and Meghan Markle right now. I kid, I kid, that statement from the Queen shows that she still has a little soft heart for her favorite grandson, even if she doesn't believe the recollections of what was said during the famous Oprah interview. The Oprah interview with Harry and Meghan happened last Sunday. Uh, it's kind of a throwback situation, sort of a big ticket uh, interview that sit down in, come on, let's face it, that was probably Gail's garden in Montecito. For a nation that's been cooped inside for a year and starved of gossip, it was kind of a wondrous thing, um, confirming that a millennia old racist patriarchal monarchy is in fact racist and patriarchal, but still to that end, 17 million people tuned in. Um, that makes it, you know, kind of like an above average first run episode of NCIS. It's good. It's not outstanding, but here's the thing. It could have been better. There's a couple ways that CBS kind of fumbled the rollout of this interview. They didn't simulcast it on both coasts. They showed it on the East Coast first. Us here on the West Coast were left trolling Twitter for tidbits. How many people didn't watch it when it aired at 8 p.m. on the West Coast because of that? I'd say probably quite a few. This is something that CBS does routinely. They do it with the Grammys every year, and it just seems so out of touch and infuriating at this point. There is another way that they kind of biffed the rollout of this. Paramount Plus launched last week. There is, of course, some legal restrictions about what can be shown when, but even if it wasn't shown at the same time in the same day, they definitely should have advertised the Oprah with Meghan and Harry interview as something as part of the launch package. You get Paramount Plus, you get to watch it. Very simple. They didn't do that. It's pretty curious. So we'll see. We'll see if Oprah's relationship with the duo extends into further interviews down the road. I certainly hope so. And if so, maybe CBS will do a better job of getting it out there. And also, if you're looking for something to do in the interim, go to Vegas and put a couple hundred bucks on that kid being named Diana. All right, guys, that's it for Corgi Corner. Again, that was Ann Donahue, our exec- executive ed- editor of, of TV. I realized I didn't say who she was prior to throwing to her. They know. They know. They know. Leo. They know. Everybody it's knows. It's their favorite segment. It's our favorite segment. Uh, but I, Sorry, no, ben. We don't know what Ann said because she hasn't recorded it yet, but I agree, I agree wholeheartedly with everything she said about uh, the interview on Sunday. Well, guys, as we mentioned up top, uh, Friday, I think, might actually be the one-year anniversary of at least Libby and I being out of the office full-time. And I think we want to take take a step back and be able to say, what have we learned in this one year, you know, in, in isolation, as it were? What has the industry as a whole learned or 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 done? Uh, ben, you sort of uh, jotted down some thoughts. I don't know if there's a place you specifically wanted to start uh, with what with what's changed or what hasn't changed in this weird, uh, you know, pandemic year. But maybe is it best just to start with that your one thing that didn't change, which is though though the rumors of, of its demise were were mentioned uh, variously. Uh, we did not run out of television. There were, we never hit a we never hit a brick wall where there was like no more TV. You've reached the end of the line. Right. I, I believe we went on the record fairly early on saying that those worries were a bit exaggerated. Um, and admittedly, you know, even even talking about the awards race uh, as we just were 
there's there are clear signs of disruption. There's clear signs of, of uh, specific shows that were annual events uh, missing from the calendar. Uh, and obviously, I'm only talking about Succession. Obviously, there are probably other ones, but who knows what they are because the gaping hole left in my heart from Succession Season 3 not being out yet is... Uh, unfillable uh, i think at least at least until you know whenever hbo gets it to us so not um, where i thought you were going there i thought you said it was filled by ted lasso <laughs> i thought <laughs> it's only i mean let's not get crazy by my, here. by my monthly binge watches of season one uh of ted lasso plus it's uh but no i i i do feel like in especially with how much real world concerns there were how, how many more things that needed to take priority television did become the kind of reliable escapism that it needed to be there was there was always something that you could turn to and we saw that um you know spiral out in a lot of things that were somewhat inevitable uh most likely uh like the the, the continued collapse of of lines between television and film were rapidly expedited by the pandemic when so many movies were premiering on streaming services or VOD. Um, a lot of the, the questions over, you know, what is film and TV shifted to where they belong, which is, you know, questions of structure and purpose and, uh, well, those two things mainly. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that looking back on this last year, there's a lot of shows from the early points of, of the stay-at-home orders and, and self-isolation that stand out as kind of pandemic trademarks. Uh, Tiger King is the running joke. Ozark was definitely very big. Uh, I believe there was even a period where Flora's Lava was a thing, but I'm preferring to forget that that happened. Um, oh, God. But even beyond that, there were still shows. There was still big benchmarks in TV and um, whether you were spending that your time rewatching things that you'd missed or discovering new content, the new content was still there, uh, which I think is going to continue. Like we're, we're people are back to work. They're churning out. Um, <laughs> the question is whether or not peak TV is over uh, and whether, whether we'll return to the highs that we were seeing in terms of how much scripted content was produced on an annual basis or if, the kind of adjustments that have been made uh, into our viewing tendencies will lead to less content overall, even though streaming is thriving. Well, yeah, I, I guess you sort of answered some things that have changed in what didn't. The The idea that, you know, streaming has thrived, that, uh, you know, as you said, content collapsed all to sort of these these streaming services that movies were, you know, being premiering on on the various streaming streamers. But, but also the idea of, like, television kind of became the virtual it's always been a water cooler topic, but like now there was a virtual water cooler around like, Hey, we're all stuck inside. We're all watching the boys. We're all watching WandaVision. We're all watching the Queens gambit. And I think, was there an aspect where, I mean, you link it to the weekly release, which not all those shows were, but the, the idea that weekly releases have sort of become the default now in terms of, making sure your show is in the conversation for as long a period as possible. Well, they've, they've definitely at least become more accepted or um, experimental in terms of, of who's, who's utilizing them. Like Netflix is still vowing to never do stuff like that, even though it's kind of specific 
shows that they have weird wonky rights issue with usually overseas stuff that's premiering weekly they'll they'll kind of dabble in that world um but other streamers especially amazon prime which you know had kind of gone back and forth but mainly leaned heavily on the all at once model started experimenting with weekly releases which was really exciting to see and you know, you can argue, and you wouldn't be wrong, that a lot of that was because production had shut down and they didn't have as many shows as they had originally planned to have by that point in the year because The Boys was a, was a fall release. Um, but you could just as, just as well argue that kind of this was bred by success. The Mandalorian set a standard when it came out on Disney Plus long before the pandemic, well, not long before, but before the pandemic, um, and showed that kind of, you know, these models still work. What HBO is doing still works. There's ways to generate a conversation using the weekly release if you have the right plan in place and the right show to go along with it. Uh, and I think that, you know, one thing that we talked a lot about in the pandemic was whether or not we'd see more experimentation from, you know, studios, distributors, from the market in general, uh, simply because they were forced to, simply because they had to come up with new ways to either make programs or release programs or deliver entertainment to the various, uh, you know, platforms that they have at their disposal. And, you know, we saw that changing a lot with film. We saw that changing a lot with how movies were released and and when they could come out and and what was happening with theaters and whether or not that adjustment will be a permanent thing. Uh, But you saw it a little bit with TV too. And the stuff you're talking about, the stuff that was still still was released all at once, like the Queen's Gambit, um, there were still distinct moments in time. Like it, it felt like they lasted, the bigger hits still lasted a bit longer. Like you could still place that in the calendar when you look back over the last year of, of the Queen's Gambit was kind of a late year thing. Like people talked about that for a good month. And, uh, you know, part of it was the discovery, you know, it wasn't a, a widely hyped show. It wasn't a huge event thing that was dropped uh, with a huge, with a, a lot of anticipation mounting up to it, it was a discovery thing where people would see it and and you know tell their friends and word of mouth spread and a conversation was generated. Um, and I, I don't know. I think that that's kind of an exciting element of television. I think we might have been heading back in that direction no matter what. Um, but I do think that big hits, especially perceived hits like Wandavision, uh, will make this a fairly permanent thing will push us toward an era in which a lot of the stuff that worked in the past for networks and distributors will be tried again. Um, and as someone, as you know, who is a fan of weekly releases and thinks they should be implemented more often, uh, as long as you have strong episodic content to go along with that, do it like lean in. It's a great way to experience a story. Uh, if the story is, you know, built to be told that way. I, I guess to go back and, and answer your question to him, uh, not that anyone asked, uh, I would say that um, one of the things that I've noticed hasn't changed within the pandemic is award shows are dying. The pandemic may have have facilitated their their death, but it definitely didn't stop it. And I think that's something that the industry has to take a long and hard look at. Um, It has to decide what it's trying to accomplish with these award shows and how that changes moving forward, like what it wants to do and uh, and and if it's time to innovate Um, leading up to the Emmys, even as we agree that the Emmys had a a remarkably successful virtual show as much as it can be. But there was still room to do more. There was still more to experiment more, to, to try new things, to try and find a new model that would 
fit closer with sort of the way we are consuming television now. Now, mind you, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't know what or if there is an actual solution to, to the award show viewership problem. But I do know that the last year would have been the time to start trying to find solutions, if there were some. Um, I don't think we saw enough of that, definitely with the Golden Globes, and we talked about this at length last week. With the Golden Globes, they definitely just tried to substitute Zoom in for everything that they would normally do. I have to say, and while I'm not a huge fan of the awards uh, as is, the Critics' Choice Awards um, actually did a much better job at incorporating Zoom and, and sort of incorporating pre-taped bits. Um, it wasn't good, per se. It was awkward. But a certain amount of that is dependent on resources. And, you know, they're on the CW. They didn't get $27 million from NBC. Um, but they had a better understanding, it felt, of, of what was necessary and what was plausible within, um, within their limited resources. And they had clips, Ben. They had clips. Yeah. I know you love clips. Love the clips. I know. Very important. Um, you need to know why you're there in the first place. So let's show it. Clips. Exactly. But it is, I mean, it's interesting to me to think about that versus what we saw like networks and studios and distributors do during the pandemic, because it did feel like there was a lot of attempts at innovation to either, you know, make these uh, kind of COVID style Zoom TV shows and see if they worked uh, as well as to, you know, like, how can we release this differently or how can we, you know, fill the content demands that people have come to expect about, expect us, uh, expect from us without being able to produce literally to make as much of the content as we could. And like, you know, money was on the line, jobs were on the line, like things were dire and the effect of that really pushed people to try some different stuff there. I mean, especially looking at, you know, like late night TV where they, they turned that shit around so quickly and some of them are still operating in the same way they were or a very similar way that they were, you know, after they came back from, from those brief hiatuses. Uh, but then to look at the award shows where it's just kind of like, well, we only have to do this once a year. I guess we'll just try the same thing again and see if it happens. That's disappointing. Like I, I wish some of that urgency would have bled over to, you know, especially the Golden Globes. Um, but to, to try to take this year as, you know, what can we do with it? What, what are the, what are the best possible, you know, scenarios in terms of our, our dreams and experiments and, uh, you know, let's, let's get some crazy ideas. And if it doesn't work, who gives a shit? It was a pandemic here. Like we, anything we try to do to entertain people right now should be met with a grain of like a, a grain of appreciation at least. Uh, but the one thing that wouldn't be met that way is if we don't try anything and that was the stuff that really upset us so um so yeah it's it's weird to see kind of the the stark difference between you know within the same industry i guess who are essentially in terms of just entertaining us trying to do the same thing you touch on a lot there but i think the one thing i think is the way that late night did pivot pretty quickly uh like I don't know about you, Libby, but, like, I miss Seth, Seth's attic. Like, I miss the attic crawl space. Like, I almost feel like the shows were better there and felt... And I understand it's probably less work on him. His show now just seems like his show, but with with Zoom interviews as and occasionally in-person interviews if they're in, in New York and in the building hosting SNL from, from a safe distance. But, like, there there's something to 
the things that change quickly and then we tried to go back to normal and ben you kind of talk about this like the covid storyline some of them work and some of them don't you know superstore and, and this is us being your examples but like i do think that in the late night their version of like the covid tv shows that connected the social distance the coastal elites that really worked for them like i think that actually worked really well for almost all of the late night hosts and i think the 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 them going back to normal while we're still in the pandemic is kind of a misstep like jimmy fallon being in his relaxed clothes and like sitting on a stool and interviewing someone via zoom and like it's like it's kind of the tonight show but it's kind of not the tonight show is worse than both his normal show and seth doing it from from the attic you know what i mean well i mean yeah yeah i, I understand we're also cross-pollinating personalities and, and jokes but like i'm worse i'm just saying worse from like a not production standpoint but like how it looks standpoint i think part of that is because the pandemic isn't over it, yeah. it feels weird uh, when seth was in his attic with the sea captain that's a difference that sea, sea captain was his parents house don't oh, confuse sorry sorry, sorry don't sorry. confuse the characters jesus sorry <laughs> um, when seth was in his <laughs> attic when seth was in his attic i i it was weird and it was strange and it was a little bit uncomfortable but it was super it was uncomfortable but it was very comforting it was a reminder that things are weird and strange all over and i found that to be very i responded very strongly to that uh this is not a normal time these are not normal things to experience or to live through and i think that was that was especially true in the last presidential administration where everything kind of felt like it was falling apart and also on fire but now still, I, I'm finding that as we come up legitimately on, on a year in lockdown, I don't know what normal is anymore. I don't know how to go back. Um, and I'm not entirely sure we should be trying to go back. And so it's very mixed. So when I see these late night shows, you know, resuming some kind of rhythm like they used to have, which I appreciate, people need jobs, they need paychecks. You know, maybe Seth doesn't want to be trapped in his attic for six hours a day. Fair. But there is this kind of loss of connection. You feel a little more isolated because you aren't back to a, a faded facsimile of your life. You're still living in the, in the uncomfortable part, in the, in the part that never really got to feel normal. And then there's also that fear of leaving this spot that became close enough to normal that it will be odd to leave it. It's one of the reasons that I really appreciate Superstore and their pandemic storylines, because that is a show that is one of the very rare shows on television, which is dealing with a uh, lower middle class, middle class, lower middle class um, earners who had to work straight through this pandemic. We're all very lucky. We've all been working from our home offices uh, for a year. But there are a lot of Americans who haven't had to do that. So watching Superstore makes me very grateful. Also, it's a very funny show. Um, and, and they do these sort of class politics shows very well. I actually, I don't know how Ben feels about this season. So uh, this is, I'm just speaking for myself. And so it has been, it has been very comforting seeing them tackle these issues with, with the light touch that they often have. Um, when with, when dealing with stuff that other shows doesn't other shows don't touch, uh, it's not like when This Is Us tries to go hard on race or it, like they they aren't they aren't fighting above their weight class, uh, and it shows. It this is this is this is the sweet spot for Superstore. Um, 
I would have been very disappointed if they did anything else. And I think shows like that, not shows orchestrated to specifically address the pandemic, but shows that were already built to handle the the complications of, of real and recognizable life are the ones that I want to see addressing this because they know how they they're they're the experts. Going back to what Ben was saying earlier, I don't think peak TV is dead. I think peak TV is delayed. Uh, it's going to take a while to get the machine back up and running, but I do think that when it is, that networks are going to be very networks meaning like streamers and content producers are going to be very anxious to build up their their backlog again because even though they haven't run out of TV, there has to be you know they're getting you're they're getting through their backstock. We're we're getting through those all those mid season replacements they only had six episodes for. Um, they are going to need to to up their production season because for all intents and purposes they've they've lost an entire production cycle. Um, I think that we are not suddenly going to be to a point where it's like, yeah, less TV, please. I think we're just going to be running about 18 months behind until we, we get back up. I don't think it's going to be fixed in the, forgive the archaic language, in the 2021-2022 uh, TV season, but more likely in the 2022-2023, we should be back up and, and, and running the way that things were before, whether it'll meet the specific highs, I don't know, but I think we'll definitely be back up to like 500 new scripted shows per year um, or 500 yeah. scripted shows per year. Wh- whatever whatever uh, TV mayor John Landgraf, whatever his numbers were recently. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, it's not something that dies. It, it's not something, I mean, so long as there are new streamers, there will be more content, there will be more shows produced. And and I don't know, we're just still not at that point. I think it is not logical necessarily to assume this is a bubble that will pop. Um, so long as people are making money on it, people are going to want to continue making money and continue getting into the game to try and make money. Unless they're so bad at it, they throw billions of dollars into it and still fail in a matter of months. Which brings us to our next point. Bad ideas are bad ideas, pandemic or not. And if you launch a streamer specializing in quick bites where you don't even own the content, uh, you might be in trouble. Guys, you will be in trouble. Guys, Quibi came and went. Uh, It launched... It launched inside of the pandemic and died inside of the pandemic. And it kind of blamed the pandemic, though I think we all thought that was uh, foolhardy uh, and that it was essentially DOA regardless uh, of a pandemic or not. Um, parting thoughts? Parting shots on Quibi? Party shots I'm sorry. on Quibi. I don't remember. What, are you t- what is this thing you're talking about? I, I don't think. know her. Could, could, those, could those billions of dollars been spent uh, better <laughs> yes okay cool we're all in agreement <laughs> unequivocal yes i don't give short answers i don't i rarely give like clear choices one way or the other but this time i can the answer is yes listen i think most billions of dollars can be sp- could be spent better 
but I definitely think Quibi's billions of dollars could have been spent better. Millions of Screens is a production of Penske Media Corporation, IndieWire. Our theme music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video of Bjork Talking About TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brightson, our publisher is James Israel, and our executive editor is Ann Donahue, and the host of Corgi Corner. Our favorite pandemic TV picks are New Girl, Six, <laughs> Six Feet Under, and King of the Hill. IndieWire's Millions of Screens endorses Old Baseball. <laughs> Technically, this was a this was a butchering of of the topic because I wanted to go with our current ones, but I couldn't remember what Libby said she was binging right now. You can find us on Twitter at a million screens at Midwest Spitfire, Ben T. Travers, and Leo Garcia. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. So leave a review and let us know what you think. This is Ben, Libby, and Leo. Remind you as always that you shouldn't let poets lie to you. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. (laughs) Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.